Episode 2, EB-5 Superhero Aaron Grau, Executive Director of IIUSA. You're listening to the EB-5 Superheroes podcast. Join host Matt Rush as he interviews the EB-5 industry's courageous men and women. Leaders protecting the path to the American dream for the good guys and foiling the sinister plots of the not-so-good guys. Billions of dollars and families' lives are at stake. Go behind the scenes as our EB-5 superheroes tell their stories of triumph against adversity, paving a brighter future for EB-5. And now, financial engineer, industry expert, and EB-5 superhero, Matt Trush. Welcome to the EB-5 Superheroes podcast. I'm Matt Trush, your host. For those of us living in the EB-5 world, we've grown thick skin and learned to buckle up tight for the roller coaster ride we lovingly call EB-5. EB-5 is an incredible federal program that has brought tens of billions of dollars to the U.S. economy, created hundreds of thousands of new jobs, and helped countless families legally immigrate to the U.S. But it's been a bumpy ride, to say the least. There have been cases of fraud, swinging pendulums of regulatory uncertainty, unnecessarily long processing times, program sunsets, and even twilight. But there's a light at the end of the tunnel. EB-5 can once again become the best and fastest and most stable letter combinations in the alphabet of US immigration paths. EB-5 can regain its highly competitive position versus other countries' immigration investment programs. EB-5 is poised to navigate America out of another economic downturn. Now is the time more than ever for the good guys and good gals to make the dream a reality again for those who believe in EB-5 and the American dream. Meet the EB-5 superheroes who are on the front lines of making positive change, the courageous leaders who are shaping the course of EB-5 for good and triumphing against adversity. Get the inside scoop, hear their stories, learn from real life successes and failures. Billions of dollars in families' lives are at stake. Join me in welcoming EB-5 superhero, Aaron Grau, Executive Director of IIUSA. EB-5 superhero, Aaron Grau, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Appreciate you having me. Everyone in the EB-5 industry will agree that you're an EB-5 superhero for all that you do day in and day out to fight the good fight for EB-5 stakeholders. Aaron, thank you so much for all that you do. It's my pleasure. I've told everybody as soon as I stop having fun, that's when I'll stop doing this. So uh, all's good. Thank you. EB-5 superhero celebrates industry leaders like yourself who are protecting the path to the American dream for the good guys and preventing the not so good guys from doing the not so good stuff. Before we jump into your role, IIUSA and the Coalition to Save and Create Jobs. Tell listeners a little bit about Aaron Grau, who you are, where you're from, and what makes you tick. How does someone like an innocent Clark Kent become an EB-5 superhero like Aaron Grau? Uh, is this where I like whip off my glasses and open up my superhero shirt? Well, I mean, uh, I, I, I went to law school. I started to practice law, became disillusioned, and made my way up to Capitol Hill, ironically, where uh, I thought great things would be done. I can't say that I was disillusioned when I was there as well, but um, I did have an opportunity to meet uh, a lot of very interesting people, many of whom were part of trade associations, lobbying and advocating for various positions. At the time, really, uh, I was focused primarily on disability issues, uh, at-risk youth issues. Um, but the concept of associations and association work stuck with me. And of course, a lot of what I was doing that that underpinned the work with um, the disability community and at-risk youth community was focused on job creation and job development. So as the years went on, uh, I found myself involved more and more with trade associations, continuing to work with communities and advocates focused on job creation and job development. And lo and behold, I ran into 
commitment to the good folks at IIUSA, where they were hoping to bring someone on to focus on association management and development, but uh, it was all in the context of job creation and job development. Of course, this time more and more painted with the brush of immigration as opposed to disability issues or at-risk youth issues, but uh, workforce development and job creation nonetheless. And so I grabbed hold with both hands. Turns out, uh, thankfully, I did need a white knuckle grip uh, because it's been a heck of a ride. But um, yeah, I that's uh, I mean, it's a little bit about me and, and how I got here. I always describe even five as a roller coaster. There's ups and downs and just hold on tight. Yeah, I said to one person, I said that the, the scariest part about a roller coaster ride is waiting in line. And uh, I have to I have to back off of that now. It's not the EV5. <laughs> that's very apropos with all the people waiting in line. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. True, true. Wow. So, you know, how many years have you been with IIUSA and um, how has that gone? And, um, you know, what have you seen in terms of the evolution of EV5 since you got there? I've seen a lot and I've seen the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? I started with EV5. EB5, it'll be three years this coming fall. You know, when I first joined IIUSA, there was a huge push actually by several folks to create yet another trade association focused exclusively on visa relief, backlog relief. And I said, that was not the time. I said, you know, there's too much work to be done um, within the association. And I said, first things first, as I understand it, we need a reauthorization. We need to focus on that, get our house in order. And we've done a lot with the association from that perspective. Everything from you know bootstrapping financially to you know all the other services that the association provides education and data as well as advocacy but the more those things have changed and improved I'm happy to say the more things stay the same because we are still faced with a backlog and retrogression and visa relief is still a priority amazingly as is reauthorization so I've met a lot of interesting characters and people a lot of true and earnest desires. And it's been a real challenge to keep everybody on the straight and narrow towards, you know, keep your eye on the goal, especially when there are so many goals. You know, there's probably no one better than you who can sing the praises of EB-5. So first tell me what, you know, what is so great about EB-5? Why is it something that our country needs so desperately or should hold on to and, and reauthorize and, you know, reform as needed? You can tell the EB-5 story better than anyone else. So tell us why is EB-5 important for America? You're very flattering. Having been around for only three or so years, I'm not sure I could tell the story. Um, I could give you my perspectives for sure. And it all goes back to workforce development and job creation. I just wrote an article for IMI Magazine focusing on what was and what still is the congressional intent behind the establishment of the EB-5 visa, and then the creation of the regional center program that really juiced the EB-5 visa for all the right reasons. The EB-5 visa and and its augmenting regional center program is good for the country because it's the only immigration program that requires job creation for an immigrant investor to secure her green card. It's that simple. There's nothing else out there that does that. And I think to overlook that and to overlook the congressional intent of creating this program as job creation and economic development overlooks the reason for the rule as they used to describe to me in law school. What is the reason for the rule? Well, what is the reason for the rule? What is the reason for the law? The law is to create jobs. And um, that is not to discount the immigrant investors and everything that they 
uh, risk and sacrifice um, to come here because without them, obviously there is there is no EB-5. But the reason for the rule is job creation. And, and, and there's no greater need in the United States now, arguably, economically, uh, than continued job growth after the COVID recession. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. That's the one I'll tell as long as I have the privilege to be with IRUSA. Let me ask, a, I guess, a controversial question, which just came up in my mind from what you just said. If job creation is the end, does it matter if the job is created is created in Manhattan or if it's created in a rural location in in the Midwest? No, no, of course not. A job is a job, but it begs questions. You can't you can't leave the conversation there. There are all there are all sorts of questions that that are part of that particular uh, dichotomy, you know. And as far as I understand, the urban versus rural um, debate is as old as EB five itself. Arguably, job creation in rural communities uh, has a greater impact on the local economy than does job creation in urban or urban distressed communities. Furthermore. Investors should realize, and they are smart people, they do their due diligence, that there is just as much of an opportunity for return on investment in a rural project, whether it's a steel mill or an ethanol plant or infrastructure, as there might be in a hotel in an urban project. However, however, cities will always be the greatest economic driver of a country. They are the greatest uh, focal point of of uh, the population. It's where uh, per capita more jobs are demanded, and it is where, therefore, where per capita more economic development can and arguably should, it depends, should happen. But if we're talking about EB-5 as an investment tool for the United States, my argument is that just like you and I may have investment portfolios that should be diversified, so should the economic, so should the EB-5 portfolio. <clears throat> and there should be an equitable distribution uh, between urban and rural communities uh, for the purposes of job creation. Um, no economy is a one-trick pony. Um, and because EB-5 gives us the opportunity to do both, we definitely should. And doing so equitably will always be a challenge. Right. So we sung the praises of EB-5, and we talked about a lot of the good guys who are doing good things here, but we've also seen that there are some people doing some not so good things. Um, and maybe it's in the program. Um, I sometimes see it being, you know, everyone's pointing blame on one part or the other. Maybe it's the, initially it was, well, these investors are coming from out of the country and, you know, what is their background? Then it was, well, the people in big cities, great big capitalists, you know, want to continue to do fraudulent activities, et cetera. You know, are there good guys and bad guys in the industry? And, you know, what do we do in order to pretty much uh, preempt them from, from doing those not so good things? I do think there are good guys and bad guys. And I think that uh, you can draw a pretty bright line between the good guys and bad guys, but the bad guys are truly bad. I mean, they have been um, convicted of fraud um, and that, to me, is the definition in this case of a bad guy. I think that anytime you have uh, as much money in play as EB-5 does, you will attract bad apples that will <clears throat> seek to game the system. And those people are bad guys or bad gals because uh, uh, they seek to line their own pockets at, at, at the expense of others who are who are following all of the rules. And so there will always be those bad guys. <clears throat> and I think that it is up to the industry and the EB-5 ecosystem to police itself with as many tools as it can glean from the federal government 
um, to help it do so. Then there are the, the people who are not bad guys, but who maybe push the envelope. Uh, and I leave it to you and to the rest of, of your listeners to determine whether they're bad guys or not. They're operating within the rules, but maybe not within the spirit of the of the rule. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go there. There will always be a gray area. But yeah, there are bad guys, and and hopefully the integrity measures that have been discussed in uh, recent reauthorization efforts will pass soon uh, and can be leveraged. Um, to help provide assurances to the good guys. Tell me about what happened on June 24th and June 30th, and and where do we go from here? Hmm. June 24th for Aaron Grau is a day that shall live in infamy. That day, the Senate, in the context of a unanimous Senator Leahy, who to this day have been the only senators, the only members of Congress, frankly, uh, who have had the courage to step up and file and 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 champion a reauthorization bill. There were no other options. They brought their bill to the floor seeking unanimous consent from all of the other U.S. senators in time to pass the reauthorization before the June 30th expiration deadline. As it happened, Senator Cornyn uh, also went to the floor uh, and championed this bill, uh, which was a huge step. That day, uh, the, 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 the unanimous consent uh, call, I think, was scheduled for 12.30 p.m. Eastern time. We heard <clears throat> from the Democrat cloakroom that uh, any objections that were being held by any Democrat senators had been lifted and no Democrats would come to the floor to oppose the bill. We heard from the Republican cloakroom the exact same thing. 12.10 p.m. Eastern time, uh, we got another notice saying that uh, Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina had, had changed his mind and he was going to the floor and he was going to object. So there was a mad scramble to reach Senator Graham or his staff. We were not successful in doing so. The senator had made up his mind. He went to the floor and when unanimous consent was requested, he simply raised his hand, said, I object, and he left. And that was all it took to, to kill the bill. Um, the Senate recessed for its, uh, uh, its summer break. Um, and in the interim, July, June 30th came and went and the program, the program expired. Why Senator Graham ultimately did what he did, what prompted him to do it, perhaps who prompted him to do it is all uh, speculation and we don't need to go there. It doesn't really matter anymore. Uh, my hope is that um, efforts that we have now will uh, appease uh, the senator's concerns that prompted him to object to the bill. And we can move on from that there. Was unanimous consent required to pass? It was. It was. Um, Senate rules are obviously tricky. Um, when you have a bill like uh, the EB-5 reauthorization bill that in the grand scheme of things is not that big of a piece of legislation, very rarely, if ever, will the Senate um, seek to have debate on that bill alone. There's just too many other things happening in the Senate to take up time to debate that bill. So it was either going to have to um, be attached to another larger piece of legislation and passed with it, or it was going to have to be passed through unanimous consent, for which the rules of debate are significantly more simple. There was no other larger piece of legislation. So our option, uh, given the time frame before the 30th expiration date, was only the unanimous consent path, and you know the outcome. And then uh, June 30th, the program expires. How long are we in this in for this limbo, Aaron? I don't know the answer. I hope we are in this limbo until the end of September. That's when the Senate and the House, but we're focused on the Senate, will have to take up some must-pass 
spending bill. The end of the fiscal year for the federal government is September 30th. October 1 is the beginning of the next fiscal year. Therefore, some measure of a spending allowance has to be passed in order to continue to facilitate operations of the federal government. Now, theoretically, uh, that should have included all 13 appropriation bills passed through what is called regular order, but that hasn't happened for a long time. So typically what will happen as we get closer to the end of the fiscal year is one of a handful of things. Either they will pass um, an omnibus bill, which is just every all 13 bills packed into one. It's usually thousands of pages long. Or they will pass what they call a minibus bill, which is maybe four or five of those appropriation measures that fund health or education or DOD or whatever it is packed into a bill. Or if they can't come to an agreement on any of that, they'll pass a continuing resolution that's, that maintains the status quo that says, okay, we have no new money to give the federal government, but we're going to allow the federal government to continue operating at current funding levels. So we're not going to close up shop. We'll pass a continuing resolution. Any one of those three options is germane if leadership allows it for a reauthorization package, uh, an EB-5 reauthorization package. And as I say, one of those three options has to pass. If we are on one of those three options, then we too are reauthorized. So my sincere hope is that the debate, which has been done many, many times at this point over all of the issues that, that continue to uh, rile within the EB-5 ecosystem can be agreed to on one term sheet presented to uh, Senator Schumer, the majority leader who would be prompted to um, move the package along and finally get it, get it done. And frankly, off of their plate as much as it would be off of ours. So that's what I hope will happen. And how does Aaron Growl you know, get through through it. It seems like you've been at the, the front car of the roller coaster more than anybody else, seeing the ups and downs. It's, it must be difficult and you have to have a lot of thick skin to get through this. I didn't start with thick skin um, <laughs> and it's not thick everywhere. I still have vulnerabilities and my emotions still get the best of me at times. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, there are constantly rumors circulating. There are constantly uh, red herrings there are constantly um, stories and, and um, suppositions and assumptions made by this lawyer or that congressional staffer or this member of IAUSA or, or that contributor to EB-5IC. It doesn't matter. I do my best to acknowledge whatever the emotional up or down is, and then get right back to focusing on, on, on the topic at hand. Um, I equate it to, I, I, I went to law school. My parents are very upset. I never, pra I practiced for a very short time. But when I was in law school, we had to do a moot court competition. And the name of the game, you know, while you're being peppered by, you know, your, the judges, you know, what about this issue? What about that issue? You know, they want to know about this. You always have to answer the question, do it as best as you can, and get right back to your argument. Answer the question, deal with the issue as best you can, and then get right back to the argument at hand to, to get through your case. And I... I see some equivalencies here. We need a reauthorization. There are a lot of passions on all sides. Acknowledge them, respect them, don't discount them, but they get right back to your case because you got to get this done. Wow. The best case in your mind, the best option for everyone would be? Best option for everyone would be, how about this? How about this, Matt? How about a permanent authorization for the EB-5 Regional Center Program passed in the 
spending bill that must pass by September 30 that would include grandfathering provisions forevermore for good faith investors should this ever happen again, that includes integrity measures to protect good faith investors, and that addresses in an equitable way the issues of investment amounts and definitions of TEAs so that the U.S. can maintain a focus on its job creation policy with an equitable distribution across the country. How about that? That's that's what I want. That's what I'm going for. That sounds great. At the moment, we have about 10,000 visas instead of the uh, 10,000 investors. Great. So would that be something to throw in there or is now not the time? Look, I say throw it in there. I say if you don't put down a marker that says we are we need this, uh, you have a harder time going back to argue for it later. That said, I don't think we're going to get it, at least not in this reauthorization. I think that that's something that would be part of a much broader immigration reform conversation that would include the same types of visa relief debates for other e- for other visa categories. Um, I'm not hopeful that Congress would give EB-5 visa relief without addressing other immigration issues. Interestingly, though, after after our triumphant win in September, right? We're going to think positively. Congress may well debate a a, uh, budget reconciliation package. There's been a lot of conversation about whether immigration policy reform can be included in that package writ large that that, 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 that that would include other visa categories. So maybe, you know, maybe, maybe. You know, if we can get our ducks in a row and we can prove to Congress that this is a program worth blessing and reauthorizing, maybe we can be part of that conversation should it come to pass. I don't know. But as of this go around for the reauth, we need those 10,000 as opposed to just the 3,300 that we get, but it won't happen in this bill. Okay. So we're expecting the best of all results. By September 30th, we'll have the program reauthorization. We hope also integrity measures. But if they're not instituted at this at that point, is it possible that they could happen further down the line or the USCIS could do it themselves? Is there any other, I guess, plan B that we might see play out? It's possible. It gets more and more improbable, uh, at least um, for the immediate future. The longer a the longer an expired program stays expired, the harder it is politically to muster the will to reinstate it. Is there a plan B? No. Um, Now, that's not to say that um, we wouldn't be able to fall back on the two bills that have been introduced in Congress and begin to rework them. You know, S-831 has been introduced in the Senate, H.R. 2020. 91, I think I've already forgotten the bill number has been introduced in the House. You know, between the two bills, there are close to 30 co-sponsors, Republicans and Democrats. And that is nothing to sniff at. Uh, you know, those bills don't go away simply because the program hasn't been reauthorized. Those bro- bills are there, they're viable, and they'll stay viable until the end of 2022. So it's likely that a plan B would develop around that legislation that's been introduced in an effort to reconstitute the program that way. Great. Thank you. So tell me about IIUSA and the Coalition uh, to Save and Create Jobs. Are they two separate organizations and directions, or they really go hand in hand? That's a good question. They are two organizations, but they do go hand in hand. Uh, The Coalition to Save and Create Jobs was established to bring together stakeholders of the EB-5 community who would not necessarily think of themselves as stakeholders and and therefore probably wouldn't ever become members of IIUSA. So for example, 
example, mayors from across the country, economic development offices, uh, trade associations that focus on uh, the hospitality industry or the manufacturing industry. These are all organizations that have benefited in one way or another from EB-5 investment in economic development. And so the Coalition to Save and Create Jobs is really a, a collection of those, I'll call them ancillary, but they're really not. They're really direct beneficiaries of the EB-5 program, but who are not part of uh, the EB-5 industry. They're more part of the EB-5 ecosystem, uh, if you will. And, and all of those who joined the Coalition to Save and Create Jobs did so because they recognized the benefit EB-5 investments have provided to their industry or to their community. And they want the, the program to be reauthorized as well. So anybody from you know real estate developers to, to um, uh, medical device manufacturers are part of the coalition and it continues to grow. I mean, just because, uh, just because the efforts on the Hill uh, are where they are certainly doesn't mean that advocates aren't continuing to add their voices to the coalition. Awesome. Aaron, there's a question I'd like to ask uh, EB-5 superheroes. So personally, if you look at yourself and what you do, what would you say is your superpower and what would you say is your kryptonite? And then we'll ask the same for the EB-5 industry as a whole. Mm-hmm. My superpower. I don't. I don't know that I would call it a superpower, but I like to think uh, that I that I I have some patience. <laughs> I like to think of myself, uh, or I always try to be empathetic. There's a time in my life uh, when I was much younger, probably when I was uh, not as patient or empathetic uh, as we get older. We tend to be, hopefully, less and less so. Uh, egocentric, that is. Um, but I'll tell you this, when I first joined IIUSA, uh, I made a, a very foolish mistake, um, and I won't recount the circumstances, but it, it ended up in my discounting the value, the struggles of the investors themselves. Wrong, 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 a thousand times wrong, uh, and I will always regret uh, that mistake. So I have, at this point, um, I would say my superpower, what I like to bring to the table is an acknowledgement that there are a lot of people who count on this program, including the investors, including mayors, including regional centers. They all have a role to play. And it's very important to be sure that all of them are included. So that empathy and that patience throughout all of this may be maybe superpower. And if I had to say uh, kryptonite, I uh, I rely on a lot of people to to help me through situations that are very detail oriented. I I lack um, a semblance of history. Uh, I've only been here three years. Um, I lack uh, a, a real true working knowledge of immigration law. And when we get deep into the weeds on those conversations, I'm grateful to have folks around me who know what's what. So maybe, maybe, maybe that those answer questions, I'm not sure, but uh, I, I'm learning. I'm learning. Well, I think you're being very modest. You probably know a lot more than you uh, let on to say you know. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Don't touch <laughs> me. Don't, no quizzes. <laughs> and then with the EB-5 industry, you know, usually we see that um, life's greatest challenges lead to the greatest opportunities and that we grow uh, personally and as an industry through those challenges. So where would you say the EB-5 industry has met its greatest challenges and then can transform those challenges into the greatest good? I think the greatest challenge that we've had has been a belief that unanimity, true unanimity among members of the EB-5 family ecosystem 
industry, whatever you want to call it, is necessary for progress. I think that unanimity moniker is very misplaced. Uh, when was the last time you sat around the table with your family uh, to make a decision about what you were going to have to dinner or what you're going to do the next day where you were unanimous? It doesn't even happen. It doesn't even happen around the family table, let alone around an entire industrial ecosystem. So this reliance on the need to demonstrate unanimity, I believe has been an Achilles heel and it's become an excuse on Capitol Hill for intransigence. We don't have to have unanimity. What we need is consensus to move forward on a pragmatic basis with an understanding that not everybody will get what they want and perhaps they might not get what they need. But, but, the largest number of people will get as much as what they need, or perhaps even all of what they need and some of what they want. I think that that has been the greatest challenge within the industry, so much so that it has spawned uh, the EB5IC. Members of that organization feel very differently than many members of IIUSA. It's created other organizations representing various facets of the immigrant uh, investor community. There will never be unanimity. Please stop believing that there will be. And I, and, I, and I implore members of the Hill and staff to dispossess yourself of that false narrative. And I think that if we can overcome that uh, and recognize that this program is worth saving at all costs, even if those costs are that not everybody will get what they want, uh, we will find success. But it's that unanimity albatross, I think, that has really dragged us down. Um, and as phenomenal as it would be to have it, it is, it is, it is elusive and, and we waste a lot of time trying to grab it. You can it. see, um, I, I think that's a really beautiful point. I mean, you can see that demonstrated on June 24th, where the requirement for unanimity uh, was broken by one voice. And really, I think what, what makes America great and what makes our political system so great is that we can have alternate opinions and voices um, coexisting. Um, but when it comes to legislation, there's a process, I guess, um, where in most cases, majority will rule and um, those who will follow. And I think that's a very interesting point that you made. Well, it, it wasn't just one voice. It was one voice articulating only three syllables. I object. And that was all it took. And that is the system that we have. Churchill said that democracy is the absolute worst way to govern a country, except for all the other ways. And, and it sh that, that, that truism showed itself on June 24th. Frustrating, frustrating. But if we're going to do it, we're going to do it right. And um, I believe we have the opportunity to get it done. You know, I, I truly believe that, you know, we're all going through this, you call it a roller coaster or, you know, bumps in the road or, you know, definitely, um, you know, challenging times. But uh, we hope to iterate or intimate, you know, greater and, and a better, you know, program for the, for the nation and, and for the, the people who, who work within the, the industry. Yeah, absolutely. Why else are we doing this? Um, trade associations like IIUSA were created to make all the boats rise. I am not the executive director for the purposes of benefiting one or two companies. I am the executive director for the purposes of benefiting all of the members. And as I have come to acknowledge, as I mentioned before, really the entire ecosystem. And that's what it is. It's an ecosystem that does wonderful things for investors and for communities. And why are we turning a blind eye? We'll get there. We'll get there.
Beautiful. So tell us how you and your team at IIUSA and the coalition are, are saving the day. You know, tell me about your team of superheroes who do and support all the good things that you do. Sure, I'm happy to. I mean, they're really the reason that we are as viable and productive as we are. Um, the IIUSA team is made up of three incredibly bright individuals. Um, I'll never forget when I first came on board to join them, I looked around the room and uh, I saw what they were doing and who they were and what they were capable of. And I said, I asked rhetorically, but maybe not so rhetorically. I said, why, why do you guys need me? I said, this is, um, you guys have this under control. And one young lady raised her hand and she says, well, we needed somebody with a little bit of a belly and some gray hair because we needed people to take us seriously. <laughs> and I said, gray hair, what are you talking about? Um, but it's maybe, maybe that's the role I play. If I can bring some gray hair to the to the to the cause, so be it. But Ashley Casey, who runs the content for all of our programs and all of our education, Mackenzie Penton, who is in charge of uh, our membership relations and developing new membership, and Lee Lee, who is a data analyst and statistician, um, who is second to none in his uh, abilities have provided value to the association, to me, to its members, to the ecosystem, a hundredfold more uh, than I could ever, uh, let alone on my own. And I'll also give kudos to um, a gentleman named George McElwee and his business partner, Keith Pemrick, who are the lobbyists that IRUSA brought on. These guys are bipartisan and what differentiates them and their firm, uh, Commonwealth Strategic Partners, is their genuine enjoyment of the grunt work. These guys put in the time, um, a lot of shoe leather. Um, and uh, I think it's a big reason we are at the table um, and why we're having the conversations that we're having. Their lobbying efforts and their understanding of the rules and procedures are second to no one. Aaron Grau, EB5 Superhero Par Excellence. We are so excited that you could come join us today. Any concluding remarks that you want to leave us with about your vision for the future of EB5? My vision for the future is a permanent program in which we can focus on increasing visas and increasing job creation across the country. That's why I'm here. And that's why we're not going to stop. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm eager for the end of September to vindicate and validate all of us so that we can march toward a, a, a much brighter future for economies and for immigrant investors. That's what I'll say. Aaron, thank you for spearheading all of these great efforts. We thank you for all that you do and keep going and flying higher. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Let me know if there's anything else I can do. Bye, guys. That's a wrap. Aaron Grau and other EB5 superheroes like him are the industry's best and brightest who are flying onward and upward to bring out the best in EB5. Join me on the next episode to meet the next EB5 superhero. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the EB5 Superheroes podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating, and share the podcast with the good guys and good gals who believe in EB5 and the American dream. To access today's show notes, ask Matt a question, or suggest an EB5 superhero to be featured on the show, visit eb5superheroes.com. 